that just told me that we were doing something right, that we were available, that students felt like they could come and, and talk with us about, about problems, but also to stop by and get chocolate in my office or to stop by and say, I want to, I want to talk about careers. Yeah, there's chocolate in my office. Don't look I at me like that. I got a chocolate bar like two weeks ago Man. from his office. <laughs> I've only been developing my career. <laughs> to life a phd and beyond on today's episode we'll be discussing career paths i'm aaron and on today's episode i'm joined by Brittany, angelica and tiffany and we also have a very special guest uh director of the graduate school here at wake forest university dr brady hey y'all good to see you so uh dr brady uh directs the graduate school as i just said he also um has developed and uh, instructs a course on career planning and networking um, how to put your best foot forward in deciding what you want to do with the PhD or the master's degree once you earn it. Yeah, if you want to give a little background on why you uh, developed the course and some of the main points and the focus that you try to instill in the students as they come through the course, it'd be great. Sure. So, um, you know, one of the things that we have as a part of our degree requirements, um, you know, in order to achieve a degree at Wake Forest um, in the PhD uh, degree requirements, especially, um, there is a requirement f that you will participate in professional development, right? And so that's a very broad description. Master students don't have that same degree requirement. Um, but because we have that degree requirement, we need to have some way of actually making sure that you're meeting it. Uh, and so we historically had this course called grad 701, which was called professional with seminars in professional development. And, um, when I got here in uh, December of 2015, we had a, a faculty member who was in the process of retiring, who was in charge of grad 701. Um, but it met, uh, I think f about four times a term. Uh, they would have, they had, they invited a few alumni speakers in to talk about careers and things like that. But they predominantly focused on the, um, you know, the types of things that a PhD student needs to know to be a functional scientist, right? So we would have lectures on um, how to work with animal subjects and how to work with human subjects and um, how to manage conflict of interest and all of those types of things. Oh, and, yeah. and, and they were, they're critical um, for training grant purposes, if, if nothing else, but they're also highly useful in, in training students to be professional scientists. Um, so Mike Titel, who was the one that, that had the grad 701 course assigned to him, retired. And I was sitting with Dr. Godwin, our dean, saying, well, who are we going to tap to teach this course? And, um, and so we, we went back and forth for a couple of weeks just trying to think about a good person that we could bring on that could teach professional development. Um, and we just kept coming up empty, if I'm honest. And, um, and so I was kind of sitting at home one night and just kind of thinking about, you know, what are we going to do about grad 701? It's a degree requirement for PhD students. We can't not teach it. Um, you know, we might be able to get away with not teaching it for a year because then we can get everybody that's a second year to come back and take it next year. Um, and it just kind of hit me that I was actually really well positioned to, to, to teach that course. Um, and so in the very first term that I taught grad 701, um, I decided we were going to meet every week and I was going to try to mix it up and have the lectures that had to do with being a professional scientist and begin to mix in more careers. And so I think some of you probably did 701 with me. I don't, 
I, I can't remember if you did 701, Brittany, or if you did 715 and 716. You probably, I guess you did 701. So Brittany and, and Aaron, I think you guys both got the experience of having that all condensed into one term. But as we were working our way through that term, what really hit me was that these were definitely two distinct topics. Like there was this, this, this need to talk about how to be a professional scientist, but there was also this need to talk about the, about career options. And I felt like we were given both kind of short shrift by combining them into one course. Well, uh, part of the becoming a professional scientist, it sounds like a lot of those things were things that the NIH mandates now. Correct. So you had to, uh, a lot that time yep. for that. Yep. Absolutely yeah. had to. Um, but, to, but even to that point, there were, there was a call for us to introduce more rigor and re reproducibility types of lectures. There mm -hmm. was, there were, there were more topics that then we could cover when we were trying to split it between careers and, and, and the professional development need. So, um, during that spring term, I was already in the process of submitting a, a course addition form. Um, and then I also did a, a course change form mm -hmm. and at the me and at the same time I'm thinking about, okay, now we're going to invite in speak, you know, alumni speakers across 15 weeks. So that's a minimum of 30 alumni that we're trying to leverage and get to come in and speak. And I've been in the job since 2015. So mo most of our alumni that are out there aren't going to know my name from Adam. Um, but even so it was an exercise over the summer of, of really working hard to try to line up the speakers. But as I was working through that, I was just kind of thinking about my own career path. And so I, you know, I delivered the opening lecture in that class, I actually did it today, um, for this fall term. Um, because I, I just, I having, knowing what my career looks like and the fact that I started out as a, a PhD in organometallics from Vanderbilt, and now I'm the director of the grad school at Wake Forest. I mean, it's sometimes hard to see the bridge. Um, and the bridge is really important because when you see the bridge, you begin to understand that our, our careers evolve in a stepwise fashion and we're always drawing on prior experience. Um, and so that's, that's generally the lecture that I deliver uh, early on. But the, the real key point of that opening lecture, uh, again, if I'm honest, is that I finished my degree at Vanderbilt and said, well, I guess I'll do a postdoc because that's what the majority of my peers were doing. Yep. It sounds um, very familiar. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people say that's it. right. And, and, and I, and I realized that my primary goal for grad 715 was not to try to steer people away from a postdoc, but to get to a point where nobody said, I guess I'll do anything. I, you know, that, that they would be more defined and, and more intentional in planning for a career. And so that's very much the way that I focus on facilitating grad 715 um, you know, there's a series of assignments that are meant to help people do, um, some self-assessment. They, you know, there's a self-assessment exercises available through, um, aas.org that students do twice now in the, in the construct of the class. They do it at the beginning of the term and again at the end after they've seen most of the, uh, of the, uh, speakers so that they can see if their responses are evolving, if they're learning something about themselves as they're going through it. Um, students still write a career planning paper where they're, where they're meant to put together a, a description of how they would make themselves a viable candidate for a career. Um, 
but we've also layered in some additional things. We're now submitting business card details as an assignment so that we can get business cards <laughs> ordered in a, in a, in an expedient fashion. Um, and they're, they now have uh, to create an interview bank of questions so that they, you know, they've got those available to them both for the course and for beyond the course. Um, so it's, it's definitely falls into the category of professional development, but 715 is very much focused on, on helping students prepare for an eventual career and be intentional about it. I like all these steps that you've included in the curriculum because they're all things that someone could use an excuse not to um, network or not to uh, pursue or, or think about different career yeah. paths um, like the, uh, the assessment test or making the business card like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, these these interview questions. Um, no, I, yeah, I, I think it's it helped me at least uh, mm-hmm. really explore the different pathways. Yeah. Whoa, yeah. spoilers. I'm still <laughs> taking this class. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Can uh, you talk a little bit about your career path after you did your postdoc? Sure. So um, when I tell the story, I like to, you know, I, I generally kind of start at the point in time when I graduated from Vanderbilt. Um, I was, I was a, a organometallic chemist there, got, uh, defended my PhD in April of 2001. Um, I had done a, a summer uh, internship at Los Alamos in 1999, which ultimately allowed me to, to parlay that into a um, postdoc at Los Alamos. Um, and that's, you know, one of the, part of the story that you tell there is the fact that I essentially got a three month interview for a postdoc when I was in my third year of graduate study, which kind of points to the, the opportunity that's available through internships and through those types of external opportunities. And when your mentor supports you in that regard, it's something that you should definitely take advantage of. My mentor actually came to me and said, you know, I think this would be great for you. And I I personally don't know why he didn't want to see me for three months, but I thought that, you know, I just went with it. And, 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 you know, so we, I I got that, uh, that internship and, and that was ultimately is what turned into my postdoc. Um, after that, I moved on to the NIH as a staff scientist, and, and again, when I tell the story, it has a lot to do with trying to uh, help students understand that your professional life and your personal life have got to be in sync, and when they get out of sync, you will make a change, and more often than not, we hope that the change that you make is in your professional life um, because what we, what we would hate to see is that you know a marriage get fractured because your professional and your, profe- and your personal got out of sync. Mm-hmm. Um, it does happen, though. Uh, but my my departure from Los Alamos actually was very much driven by my by my, the personal side of my life because um, my wife nor I was particularly happy in the New Mexico desert, um, especially in, in in the year two thousand and one when there had been a major fire in two thousand and it was in, in a lot of the the parks and and play, and outside activities were kind of closed off to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife had had found a, had gotten an offer to move back to the to the East Coast. Um, to work at Johns Hopkins um, as a speech language pathologist, and and she said, "I'd really like you for like for you to come with me," <laughs> and and I I also felt, thought that that sounded really awesome, um, but it took I was I was lagging behind her in identifying a position for myself, but I uh, I managed to talk to the to the the uh, Martin Breckbill who eventually hired me at the NIH as a staff scientist, um, and basically sold him on the, he, he had a job opening for a staff radio chemist. Um, and I hadn't formally been a radio chemist, but I sold him on the, on the reality that I had worked with radioactive elements and I knew a lot about metal ligand binding from my, from my under, from my graduate work as a, as an organometallic chemist. And I basically sold him on hiring me, um, just because I had those two major aspects of my background. 
Um, and it worked. Um, and so I, I, but I stayed there for about three years, um, beyond, uh, uh, when I moved beyond, uh, that position, I, I was a staff scientist at a small company called microcosm, um, that was in Columbia, Maryland for, uh, some, uh, for, uh, I forget exactly how long that I was there, but I, I actually point to that as, as my biggest professional failure because I totally inadequately interviewed that company. Um, and so I, I, there were some, some ethical questions that, that gave, that would gave rise within that company. I, I, uh, I had to stop the, the, I had to step in and stop the president of, of the company from plagiarizing into a grant proposal that I was going to be the PI on. Oh, wow. Um, so that, uh, when you say you yeah. inadequately interviewed, you mean you didn't vet the company yourself as the bingo interviewee. I, I, you know, when, when you interview, it should, it should always be a two way street, right? You, you, you they want to know about you, but you should want to know about them as well. And, and I, I ultimately could totally failed in interviewing them. Um, and so part of what, uh, and so that was, that was a, a bad experience, but within that experience, I really kind of forced myself to go, all right, what do I really want out of a career? Because I already had an inkling that remaining at the bench was not for me. Um, and so it took me a little bit of time to figure out where I belonged, but I had a, a, a former colleague from Los Alamos that was working in medical writing. Um, I contacted him and I said, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit about medical writing. And, and he, in, in his in, uh, great British voice says, uh, you know, I, so you figured out you don't belong at the bench now. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, we knew that when you were at Los Alamos that you weren't going to be there forever. And I was like, well, that would have been great if you'd shared that information. <laughs> um, but John said, well, I'm working in medical writing at Eli Lilly, but it's very right. It's very, it's writing of a re very regulatory nature. And he said, I think you would find it very dry and, and, and dull, but he knew, uh, one thing he knew about my background is that um, I'm a, an Appalachian State graduate, and my undergraduate degree was in chemistry with a with a focus on being a secondary ed, ed, educator. So I was I started out to be a high school chemistry teacher, but I also knew you know by the by the senior my senior year of college that I wasn't ever really going to do that because I had already committed to going on to grad school. But he knew that I had this this formal pedagogical training, and so John recommended to me uh, a career in medical in medical education, which is an entire segment, right, uh, a sector of the of the industry where um, we prepare uh, materials that um, keep practicing clinicians on the forefront of, of science and, and allow them to, to implement and use new drugs and all of those types of things to combat disease. And so I, I, I found my way into that, into that world, uh, through Anovia education Institute who hired me to come on and, and be, uh, and work almost kind of a super medical writer. So I was doing some medical writing, but I was also managing faculty and, and helping implement programs. And then from there, I, you know, I went through a couple of other um, medical education companies in order to advance, uh, but also because those individual companies had made some, some, some business decisions that had landed them in a place where, they, where the two companies that I went through before I got to clinical care options, which was my last stop before where I am now, um, both of them made some, some business decisions at the highest levels of the organization that ultimately cost them their business. Like they, they went out of business because they, they, they did, they weren't diverse enough in one case, or they had diverted funds to make payroll for a sister subsidiary and then things didn't work out. So, 
Um, but at any rate, I, I wound up at clinical care options where I spent the, uh, six, around six years before I, before I came to wake. And that was a really good position for me. I, you know, I, I spent all of that time developing my skills as somebody that knew a lot about the measurement of educational outcomes. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these education companies will put together education. So the obvious question is when you put that in front of, of physicians or, or clinicians, how do you know it worked? And so that, that's what I really got good at was, was determining whether the education had had an impact. Um, and I had a lot of people whisper in my ear over the years that when I'd be at major conferences, that if I ever decided to leave CCO, that they'd really like to have, have me on their team. Um, the unfortunate reality of, of me being at CCO for as long as I was, um, was that I, in my, in my role, you want, I, I wound up sharing a lot of, of hard truths and I began to get the sense towards the end of my time at CCO that, um, people were starting to hit mute on my voice. Like I, like decisions were being made that were clearly at odds with data that I was providing. Yeah. And that, 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 and so I, I began to think about where to, maybe it's time. You know, I, I knew that there were opportunities out there for me to go and do exactly what I had been doing at CCO elsewhere. I mean, I had, I had three or four companies out there that I think would have made, that I know would have made an offer. Um, but I, I thought it was also an excellent opportunity to think about a larger career shift. Um, and I started kind of kicking the tires on higher ed and just looking to see if it was a good, you know, maybe it was time, maybe it was a good time to think about going into academia. And I, I initially saw a job opening for Wake Forest for director of academic affairs and I applied for it. Um, and, uh, one of the, uh, assistant deans, uh, interviewed me for that position over the phone. Um, and they, she, she called me a couple of weeks later and, and, and was very open about the fact that they, they really had a candidate in mind when they ran the job ad and they had decided to go with that candidate, but that she was really impressed by my phone interview, thought that I would be a great member of Wake's team and to keep Wake in mind and to keep on, you know, keep Wake on their, on my radar. Uh, and a couple of weeks, I guess well, no, a couple of weeks, a couple of months later, um, my position was listed as available. And, uh, I applied for it, reached back out to that same, to that same assistant dean and said, I would really like, I mean, I think this would be a really great fit because while the first position, I knew a lot about medical education, there was something really inviting to me about the concept of now of going in and being the, 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 uh, the chief administrator for the graduate school, which is what I had myself had come out of. And I just saw a lot of, a, a lot of, um, good opportunity to be a, a change agent within a graduate school office. And the dean agree, agreed, um, and that's how I you know, got to the position that I'm in right now. But one, one of the really beneficial things that happened was that I, because I had such deep experience in the medical education space, um, I also, you know, concurrent with my move to Wake Forest, stood up my own consulting firm. And so I still consult in the medical education space, particularly on educational outcomes assessment. And that's a lot of fun. So at this point in your career, how, do you feel like you've already uh, discovered your dream job? Or are you still working towards it? So I think careers are always evolve, and and I try, and I try to you know make help people see that there's it's a, it's a rare case now for somebody to take a career and for them to do it for their for their entire life, right? I mean, some people, I mean, people do that with jobs. But with careers, I, I feel like careers evolve. And am I where I want to be now? Yeah, I'm where I want to be right now. I'm exactly where I want to be right now. But I will be the first one to admit that I've quit jobs for boredom. And um, I mean, that's just real. And the, the reality is that 
if a time ever comes when I start to get bored in this position, that's when I will start to think, okay, is it time to, to, to pause and go, is this the right place for me to be? Or is it time to think about something different? Um, I am inherently the type of person that does for better or for worse, think about climbing a ladder, right? That's just kind of the, the way that I approach life though. Um, but for the time being, I'm, really happy to be in the role that I'm in. I feel like I'm making a, I'm feeling I'm making a difference. I feel like I am a change agent for the graduate school, um, and, and, in really positive ways across the institution. Um, I feel like I am improving the experience for our students and faculty. Um, and as long as I can continue to do that, I'm, I, I just really don't see me making any substantial change, but to say, am I in my dream job? And, and is this what I see myself doing for the rest of my career? It's, it's easy for me to say yes today, but three years ago or three years away, I could, that could change. And I don't want anybody to call me a liar, but because the reality is careers evolve. I mean, that's, that is just what they do. At least wait till we graduate. We yeah. really appreciate that. <laughs> don't Fair leave enough. us. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, you said, yeah, that you, you're always trying to climb a ladder or you mm -hmm. see your career as a ladder. Um, when you start to get bored or you start to, uh, get, uh, yeah, not as enchanted with a job, is it a worry that you are spinning your wheels or is it a worry that you might start to slip in your, uh, performance? Um, what's more the driving factor at that point? And, yeah. and I guess what advice would you provide someone who does start to feel a little boredom? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think everybody's going to, and everybody's going to respond to it a little bit differently. I think there are a lot of people out there who kind of crave knowing how to do something extraordinarily well and repeating it then, and, and continually trying to figure out the way to make it more efficient. And I mean, those are, those are your, op, your operational thinkers, right? And I, I, I tend to fall into that category. Um, but I will say that if things become too rote, that's when it becomes problematic. And, and I think, but I also think that that's, that that means that we're not engaging any longer in a process of continuous improvement, right? In in the business world, we think we call it continuous quality improvement because we always want to get better. Mm. Well, in a lot of ways, that's, there's a direct correlation for like continuous personal, you know, improvement and, you know, CPI, we don't say that very often, but I get, I think that's, that's the approach that I often take is just, am I making myself better? Am I making the world around me better? Um, and I, I, when you get into a position where you're not doing that anymore, it's there, something's out of sync You're and something you need to figure out whether you can restore that process of continuous improvement for yourself and for the job that you're doing, or if you need to just move on to something else. I mean, I think that, but, and, and look, asking these questions is just part of life. I mean, you're, you're going to do that as you, as you work your way through a career. So what, I guess, since you really do seem to enjoy your job right now and aren't, um, about to go to battle royale with, uh, Dr. Godwin over <laughs> a promotion and <laughs> overthrow him, um, what's the best part of your job or like, what do you think is really unique that, um, you get to do in this job in particular? So I'll tell you that when I came and when, when we talked about when Dr. Godwin and I talked about, you know, the frame that was built around this position, we never talked about me having a role as an educator and, and teaching. Um, and I teach a class in the fall and spring and, and I love that, um, because it connects me with you all. It connects me with the students. Um, 
you guys feel inherently more comfortable coming to my office when you've got a real problem. Right. And, and so for me, one of my, and, and that's something that I, I know I've seen feedback from, uh, when, when students have been surveyed across all of our educational programs, one of the things that, that came through specifically for graduate students was that they, the, the grad students that responded to that survey were the ones that commented on it. There were multiple people that said our access to the highest levels of the administration in the form of Dr. Brady and Dr. Godwin was, is amazing. And, and to me, that was, that just told me that we were doing something right, that we were available, that students felt like they could come and, and talk with us about, about problems, but also to stop by and get chocolate in my office or to stop by and say, I want to, I want to talk about careers. Yeah, there's chocolate in my office. Don't look I at me like that. I got a chocolate bar like two weeks ago Man. from his office. <laughs> I've only been developing my career. <laughs> <laughs> you've been, you've been missing out on some of the finer things, but, um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, that's one of my favorite parts of my job. But I think the, one of the other things that I really like about what I do is just, you know, having the opportunity to work with so many people and, and I just, I love being the person that, that sees the things from a level that nobody else can see. Um, because I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll share, you know, I'll, I'll guard names, but I had a situation recently where, you know, we had, a, we, where there was a, a faculty member out in the department that had students in their laboratory from multiple programs and there were some problems with the mentor-mentee relationship in every in, in the case of for every one of those students. I was almost, but I think I was the only one that could really see it because each of those those students were from, were coming in from different departments and programs, and you know, and so I, I you know it gave me the opportunity to go and sit down with a department chair and say, I just I want to make sure that you see what I see. And, and so I, I think that I, I have the ability to, to, or I have the luxury of sitting in a position where I have a lot of vision across all of our graduate programs. And it, 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 again, it, it helps me be a good change agent when I can see at that level. And I like that. Is there anything about your job that you wish was easier? Mm, <laughs> this is a really good question. There are things that I wish were easier. Yeah, I, I will say that from an institutional standpoint, we some we're a big enough institution that we sometimes fall into the rut of well, we've always done it that way, and those are very expensive words. And I will say that if there's one thing that I wish we could do better, it's that I wish that institutionally we were a little bit more nimble about implementing things that we that you know I can I can sit down with a group of people in a room and say look we really should be doing this a different way and here's how we should do it and grinding that through an organization this size can take a lot of time mm -hmm. um, you know I just I think about you know we recently made an adjustment in fringe rate um, that had to do with students being placed on grants we knew two years ago that it needed to change but it, it only recently has it actually pushed through and been changed and and I, I look at that as this huge win because it's 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 a it's an improvement for a, on a lot of different axes for a lot of different people, um, but the fact that it was such a long slog to get there is is one one of the things that that makes my job difficult. I think I'm going to take a page out of uh, your book and ask okay. you: um, Do you think a PhD is required for uh, the position that you that you hold? It's a great question, Aaron, and and, and you know. For perspective for those that haven't sat through my class before 
that's a, that is a very common question that we ask of our alumni that come in, you know, is, is because it's uh, the class is, is often a mix of PhD and master students. And, and I think it's important for our master students to understand that they don't necessarily need to go on to a PhD to be competitive in a lot of different roles. Um, in my role specifically, it's a really interesting question because as I mentioned previously, uh, Dr. Godwin was really intrigued with the notion of hiring me into this position because I had a PhD and he understood that faculty would inherently view me as more of a peer than as a bean counter or an administrator. Yeah. Um, now I do count a lot of beans and I do a whole lot of administration, but that perspective holds that faculty speak to me as a peer and not as, and not as somebody that is, you know, beneath them in any way, shape or form. And I, and I don't mean to throw shade at faculty along the lines of the fact that they, well, if you don't have a PhD, you, I, if, he, if Eric didn't have a PhD, I wouldn't, I wouldn't work with him so well. Um, but, but the bottom line is it does afford me certain benefits uh, um, that, that having the PhD is, is useful. Is there, but, but to, to that end, is there anything that I do that a master's graduate couldn't do? No, nah, of course not. I mean, a, a really good operational thinker um, that has the wherewithal to learn enough about the science to, to understand, right? For this class, there's going to be necessary resources that aren't going to be needed for a lot of other classes. I mean, somebody that can think on that level, uh, uh, somebody that has a master's could do, could, could do my job. And, and, you know, and so you, and it's essentially what we're talking about is positions in research administration or in, or in education administration. We, we have somebody, um, coming in later this term, um, from St. Jude's, who is a graduate of our program, who kind of does what I do at St. Jude's in their, in their graduate program. Um, and so I, I'm real, but the interesting thing about her, she's also running for running for office. Um, so I'm really curious to see her come in and, and learn about that, that combination of, of skill sets that takes you to there. Well, so, I kind of wanted to go back to the the class. I, th I think it's, um, I think it's really important. I really enjoyed the class. I've never, I don't know, it's kind of like a job fair for us, but at the same time we get to learn about all these different career paths we can have. Um, with that, I guess that you said like the NIH does require some of these, these courses, but do any other schools have alumni like we do come in and talk? So I, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not aware of it. And, and generally when, when I talk to students from other universities, like I, I just went and did a, 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 pro, a, a program review for PhD program at North Carolina Central, and they don't have anything like this. Um, and when, when I ask around, I gen, the perspective that I generally get is that this is just not a very common course offering, um, which to me is a differentiator. And so that's why I, I, uh, we use it to try to sell the program, especially to master students. Um, some, you know, some percentage of our master students probably enter our program because plans A and B and maybe even C just didn't go the way that they thought they were going to. And so they come on to graduate school hoping that that's going to help them find their way into a career. Um, which to me is exactly why we should get them into the, into the class in their first year and, and begin that process of, of getting them to a place where they're job ready. And, um, so I think, uh, I've kind of lost my thought there, but, but the, but, but I think it's, it's an absolutely valuable resource to those students. And I, oh, I, I know it wasn't, and I just, I, I but I, I'm not aware of other institutions that do this kind of thing. 
I mean, I look at it through several lenses actually, because while it's extraordinarily useful for y'all as students, um, one of the things that we're also doing with 715 this term is, um, uh, as, as you all know, at least, um, I invited senior students who advanced the candidacy to help me facilitate the course this term. And so we have seven senior students who are, who spent the summer working with me to recruit our speakers to, and they're going to, they'll host the speakers and speak from the lectern as, as the facilitators of the panel discussions. And so essentially offering them an additional layer of professional development on top of that. And then the thing that's even that, 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 I also think is extraordinarily important about this course is it allows us to reestablish our connection with alumni that we just did not do a good job with in the past. Um, or I'm sure, you know, we have a development office who has been in contact with a lot of our former students, but for the graduate school to be reconnecting all of these people, I think is an important aspect as well. And I just remember last year, one of our speakers came in and, you know, told me that, um, when I began inviting them, a lot of them were kind of cold contacts through LinkedIn that I had no idea how, how much of a back channel developed where they were talking to each other. Did you get this invitation? Are you going to do this? This is awesome. And you know, so the alumni were really excited about it as well. Um, and so I, I, I think that's another aspect of this course and, our, and, our, and the way that we're doing professional development that is extremely valuable um, for our programs on the whole. Because those people are going to be more act, more likely to be donors to our alumni travel funds and to and to the other needs that we have, you know, to, to for philanthropy. So when those uh, speakers do show up and they give their background and their path to the career that they have, um, what, an important part of those uh, speakers' visits is networking with the current students. Yeah, and I'd be curious to know what you find to be the most common mistake people will make mm-hmm. when networking that you just want the grad students to not do? Yes. That's a great question. Um, you know, we, so, you know, one of the, one of the attributes of the course, as you all know, is that we, we give students an opportunity to have lunch with this, with the speaker and, uh, with the speakers. Um, and we reserve eight or so slots for those that are enrolled in the course and another seven slots for just the rest of the graduate students on the whole. And then we do that one first come first served. So I'm always kind of curious to see who engages and wants to ha- come have lunch. Um, you know, we do have, we, we do make sure that all students have business cards as a part of the course as well. And they have that opportunity to exchange, but w- the, the most glaring error that, that a student can make is to just let the lead go cold. Mm. You know, I mean, n- networking, it, it's, it's networking works really, really well when you've had an opportunity to establish a relationship with somebody that then you can draw on later. And I realize it's awkward for students when they're meeting this person that's out there in the working world to try to establish a rapport with them in, the, in, in a room full of potentially 20 people. Um, but if you're really intent on getting to know what that person does, um, the, the guidance that I often offer to students is follow up with them. You know, if they gave you a business card or, 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 you, or you sent them a LinkedIn connection and they connect with you, the, the worst possible thing you can do is then just let that lead go cold for four years. Mm. Um, you know, you, if it's somebody that you really think you're going to want to leverage one day, the best thing you can do is, is to follow up with them. And maybe, maybe you follow up and say, you know, could I, could I get, could we just do an informational interview? I'd really like to learn more about what, you know, about your, your career and your path. Um, you know, most times 
alumni are going to be more than happy to give you 30 minutes of their time. I wouldn't ask for more than that, but, but 30 minutes of your time on the phone so that you connect with them and you can give them a little bit of information about you. Um, is it, it, once you've done that, then you really have used the networking to as as uh, to to the extent that you can at that point in time, and then you have this opportunity to follow around with them later and say, "Hey, remember you know remember me? I, I'm you know remember we talked about this and and then then they've got that 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 recall of right yeah I remember having that conversation with you. How can I help? Well, we really appreciate you coming on to the podcast, Dr. Brady. Mm -hmm. um, I think this has been really uh, educational on career pathways, and we'd love to have you on again to talk about, um, I think, what you're doing to change the graduate school ways of life. Um, uh, you have I'd, made a, you've been a voice for us. I'd be, so. happy, I'd be happy to. It's been my pleasure. But I guess our last question is, since we call you the bow tie master, is how many bow ties do you have? I am probably somewhere in the neighbor of our, a neighborhood of around 20 bow ties. Um, and I, you know, what most people don't know is I do try to make the bow tie and the socks work together. Um, so nice. that's, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. 20 pairs of socks also? No, 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 I didn't say, I didn't say they match. I just didn't make them try to go together. You know, like, so we'd love a photo of all of them laid out. <laughs> <laughs> Some insider information. Yeah. I, I, anytime that I'm going to go, um, try to update my wardrobe a little bit, I go to my, my closet and take a picture of all of my bow ties with my phone so that I'm, when I'm standing in the store, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, that, that'll, that'll work together. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I challenge you to catch me without a bow tie on when I'm at this job, personal brand. Well, with that, you can visit our website at five to life pod.com with the number five. And we also have a Twitter Five to Life Pod. Here's five to life. Cheers. Cheers.